Is Alaska different when it comes to equal opportunity for people of color? What it means to be black and Alaskan is at the heart of a new project that seeks to present stories from, by, and about the black community from all across the state. How the project got started and what the organizers hope it will achieve is our discussion today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska's unique approach to mental health funding is improving the lives of Alaskans who experience behavioral health conditions and developmental disabilities. The Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority has a responsibility to generate revenue from its 1 million acres of land and the resources they contain. The trust uses this revenue to help fund statewide programs and initiatives that positively impact trust beneficiaries. To learn more, visit alaskamentalhealthtrust.org. This message sponsored by the Alaska Mental Health Trust. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Collecting the stories of the ongoing work for equality in education, careers, healthcare, housing, and everyday life is important for all of us to gain a better understanding of where we're making progress and where we still need to do better. And although the undercurrent of struggle for people of color is constant, news of it has flared up into the public spotlight over and over again in recent years. Sadly, too much of it has been devastating stories of loss and conflict. Creating a fuller picture of the everyday lives of Black Alaskans can help us better understand each other and build relationships of respect for a more equitable future. Joining me today to discuss the Black in Alaska project is Angela Cox, VP of External Affairs for the Rasmussen Foundation. Also with us is Bill Bailey. Bill is on the advisory committee and works as a communications specialist for Alaska Pipeline Service Company. And also Renee Wardlaw is with us. She is also on the advisory committee and she works as an attorney for Bristol Bay Native Corporation. Welcome all of you. Thanks so much for being available today. I also want to notice, yeah, thanks, Bill, and uh, Renee and and Angela, too. Thanks for being here. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Jewel Jones, a former Anchorage Social Service Department director, and Jewel has done so many things. She's worked within five different Anchorage mayor administrations, among other other various careers. We'll learn more about that when she joins us. And you can also join our conversation. Do you have suggestions about the Black in Alaska Project or... Uh, questions, or do you have suggestions for Alaskans who should be included? What do you think is missing from the story of the lives of black Alaskans? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. All right. So, Angela, I want to start with you. Rasmussen met with black leaders in 2020 before many others in the nation became engaged and enraged following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Why were the meetings convened? 
Sure, thank you. You know, so the foundation enjoys um, bringing people together to convene. Sometimes it's just to connect and hear what's happening within a region or a community. Um, maybe it's group specific to a topic like housing or healthcare um, in Mountain View. So, and it's always with the goal of learning or finding ways to partner, maybe be supportive of upcoming projects that aren't on our radar. Um, and in late 2019, our president and CEO, Diane Kaplan, <clears throat> noted that it had been a while since we met with leaders of the Black community and it was time to reconnect. So our first meeting was January 2020, and we continued meetings throughout the year and into 2021. You also did something called an ally campaign following Mr. Floyd's death. Tell us about that. Sure. So the idea for Black in Alaska actually came up before the killing of George Floyd. But after George Floyd, when we had met with the Black community, someone said, you know, it'd be really nice, you know, we're hearing from all of these major national, international corporations on where they stand on this issue. And we'd really like to hear from our local leaders, local businesses and corporations. So we created a separate campaign that was much more time limited and much more responsive to the moment that just engaged um, Alaska business leaders to come out um, loudly and say, we stand with the black community. Angela, uh, you noted that there is a lot of visual representation of Alaska's indigenous history and culture, and rightly so, but not as much for Black or Asian Alaskans. Why do you think that is when Asian and Black people have been here and part of the fabric of the state for so many decades? Um, well, as you said, right, rightly so. This is an Indigenous place. I am Indigenous, but I'm also Black. I'm also Korean. Um, and as an Indigenous person, right, I feel very proud of the representation that you can see all over that this is an Indigenous place, no matter where you go in Alaska. Buildings are named after prominent Alaska Native leaders. You know, you see statues coming up um, representing beautiful traditions of Alaska Native people. Um, but there are you know, other people here, you know, there's the story of, say, my father, um, who ended up in Alaska as a Black and Korean man. So there, I just feel like there's some rich history here, and it, that history also deserves a place um, and to be told. All right. Thank you. Uh, Bill Bailey, you're on the advisory committee for the Black and Alaska Project, as we noted at the open. And I want to remind our listeners that this is Talk of Alaska, and we are talking about a project called Black in Alaska. It is a compilation of stories uh, about Black Alaskans from all across the state. The goal is to collect 50 stories. We'll learn more about that as we go on through the hour. And on the on the line with us today is Angela Cox, the VP of External Affairs for the Rasmussen Foundation, Bill Bailey, who is an advisory committee member for the Black and Alaska Project, and Renee Wardlaw, who is also an advisory committee member. We'll hear from all of them. You can also join us at 1-800-478-8255 if you have a question or a comment or you know of a story that should be included. 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, Talk at alaskapublic.org. Bill, like Angela, you work in professional communications. What brought you on board with this particular project? What do you want all Alaskans to understand about their Black neighbors? 
Lori, you, uh, you you touched on that with the goal of uh, telling the stories of, of, of 50 folks throughout the state. And, and, and really, that's just a modicum of an amazing uh, group of folks who have um, either immigrated to Alaska or were born and raised here. Um, so I was I'm particularly passionate about this project because it's going to put a focus uh, where I believe there's some stories that have not been told. And uh, with the Rasmussen Foundation, certainly Diane, Angela, and even their board, they have an incredible reputation in the state of Alaska. So when they come calling or knocking um, about a project they're either going to fund or put their brand or name behind, um, there's, you, you listen. And, and I had the opportunity to accept an invitation to, to, to talk with some really some amazingly intelligent folks across the state of Alaska, some, some beautiful people of color that had some great ideas. And through that brainstorming process, I, uh, I you know, accepted the invitation and, and knew that we were going to come up with something very moving and powerful um, for everybody. And that was really it's going to be education about um, people of color and black folks that live here in Alaska. Bill, did you grow up in Alaska? How do you think Alaska compares to other states when it comes to respect for all people here? Lori, yeah, I was born and raised here. Um, my, my family came here in the early 60s. Uh, how do I think Alaska compares? Uh, boy, I think that just depends on whether you grew up in a rural or an urban place outside of Alaska. I, I would say that Alaska is certainly a, a diverse uh, state. I think we have a lot of room to grow when it comes to understanding, not particularly just um, black people, but really our indigenous folks. This this state is rich with so much indigenous culture, yet when you grow up uh, in some of the urban school districts, there's not as much a focus on the, the, the beautiful attributes of, of those cultures that we are surrounded by. And I think that myself included, I can't speak for everyone, Lori, um, but I took a little bit of that for granted. And I'll tell you just briefly, when I was a kid here in Fairbanks, uh, K-12, there, we used to have what's called the Alaska Room. That was baked into the curriculum. And in elementary school, you would have to, you were, you were all required to go into this Alaska Room as part of the curriculum. And, and I remember carving out of ivory soap, literally the brand ivory, and learning how to carve in bead. And, and the intent there was to learn about the beautiful culture surrounding us. So um, how does Alaska compare? I, I think we have a lot of room to grow in terms of continuing to understand and accept uh, um, cultures beyond just the majority culture. All right. Does that, well, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you, Bill, for laying that out and painting that visual picture for us of your time in, in school and learning about Alaska Native cultures. And um, it, it seems like we need room to build on that and expand. And this project seems like a great start to help incorporate more of the stories of Alaskans and, and their cultures uh, into the whole fabric of the story of Alaska. Renee, how about for you? What stories do you want to see highlighted? Yeah, and thank you, Lori, for having me here today. I think the stories that I'm most proud of and am eager to have highlighted and shared with my Alaska friends and family are the stories of how the 
Black Alaskan story is told all throughout the state. You know, oftentimes we think about a huge concentration of Black Alaskans in Anchorage um, or in Fairbanks. But I also think about my first memories of my first home in Alaska, which was Juneau, where there are less than 1% of people who identify as Black, um, certainly as Black Alaskans, but we also celebrated Black History Month in a spectacular way. We had opportunities to celebrate what was unique about the Black Alaskan experience, and we did that with the help of allyship across the board for people who didn't feel like they had to be Black to celebrate the Black Alaskan experience. So I'm just really eager and excited to showcase that the story of Black Alaska is really the story of Alaska, and that means in every single corner of Alaska. Thank you, Renee, for that. And as a Black woman and an attorney, you've clearly overcome the systemic obstacles that are often in front of people of color, and especially women going into male-dominated professions. Talk about what you faced as you were getting your education and how you persevered. Was it the strength of your family or your own focus that kept you going? Yeah, and I, and thank you for asking that question because I think that that's a question that has evolved into different answers at different points in my life. I'll say that I think the first thing that is of critical importance for any person who is Black, Indigenous, or a person of color is just sheer exposure to knowing that it's possible to be anything you want to be. And so I always credit my family for not being attorneys, because neither of my parents are attorneys, but to going the extra mile to expose me to other Black attorneys, people who looked like me when I was young, so that I could be connected and that I knew that it was possible because I was almost looking in a mirror when I saw my future. And then I think about what was so unique in my experience is that when I came to Alaska, there were just so few um, Black attorneys. I'll share with you, Lori, that when I first came to Alaska over a decade ago, there were 12 Black attorneys, and we are now at 19. And so we have so much work to be done, and yet I'm not entirely sure I would have stayed in this state but for those now 18 colleagues, friends, and loved ones who are part of the Black attorney community wrapping their arms around me to make sure that I was successful and that most importantly, I stayed here to expose what this career could be like to other Black Alaskans who are coming up in the next generation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we are talking about a new project called Black in Alaska. It is a project to compile and collect stories of at least 50 Black Alaskans from across the state. And we're learning about the project and people that are involved with it. Angela Cox is the VP of External Affairs for the Rasmussen Foundation that is supporting the project. Bill Bailey and Renee Wardlaw are also with us, and they are both on the advisory committee for the Black and Alaska Project. Angela, I want to get back to you for a moment. Oh, I should also give out the phone number. Sorry. 1-800-478-8255 is the number to call statewide if you'd like to join the conversation, if you have a question or have suggestions for stories to add, names you'd like to submit. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email questions or comments to talk at alaskapublic.org. Angela, you mentioned that this project may skew a bit toward black men. Talk about why that's important. 
Sure. Um, this was a decision that was made um, by the advisory committee. Just a feeling, you know, especially as events unfolded through 2020 um, and into 2021, where we just felt like there are so many stereotypes that Black men, the Black male faces in America, um, and probably even more so in Alaska for different reasons. But just wanting to be intentional to tell those stories. Um, you know, we have a neurosurgeon who's Black. We have a EMT, a firefighter who's Black, and just pulling those stories out and letting people see beyond the stereotypes of, you know, everyday mainstream media. Um, yeah. So I, I just, the advisory committee just wanted to be intentional, making sure that we told many of those stories. All right, and I'll uh, ask Bill and Renee to comment in a moment, but I want to stay with you just for a minute here, Angela. Uh, we mentioned earlier that the the goal is 50 stories of Black Alaskans. Any particular reason for that number? Or? No, no particular reason other than it just seemed like a good goal and a good number to get to. I think if we have could have our way, we would tell more. You know, we have identified a lot more than 50 and it's just figuring out how to get all those stories told. And how is it, how is the project structured? Are people asked specific questions or given prompts or do they decide how and what to tell about their lives? Sure. So the process in terms of getting those stories, you know, our creative team meets with an individual, um, they take photos, they're being filmed, because there are so many, <clears throat> as a multimedia project, there's the written story, there's a short one minute film on each person, and then there are just beautiful portraits too. So throughout that time, right, the creative team is spending an hour, two hours with each person, and they're just asking them questions, like how did you end up in Alaska, or how long have you been in Alaska? You know, what do you do for fun? And I think that just prompts a number of insights. Um, and through that process, a story is written and we always share it with the participant so that they approve um, what we're pushing out there for people to see. And once you have the stories collected, how do you see this being used in the future? Are there thoughts of perhaps developing curriculum for teaching it as part of Alaska history or other educational efforts? Gosh, I would, I would love that. I think we have a lot of hopes and dreams around how this material could be used. There, um, there's already an exhibition being planned with the, in partnership with the Anchorage Museum for later this spring, where we could have maybe, hopefully, all of the portraits in some way shown <clears throat> through a rotating exhibit, um, and you know, just garnering more interest there and letting young people see, you know, pictures of their fellow Black Alaskans and their professions plastered all over the walls um, in this beautiful facility. Um, we also have another organization who is has already expressed interest and asked for permission to use this early material, right? We only have two stories out, but they're saying, hey, could we use this um, for you know, a conversation we're having with our group next week? And I just think that's beautiful. You know, and I hope we see more of that as more stories come out. Absolutely. Thank you. Bill, I want to turn to you now and, and um, uh, get your thoughts on, Angela mentioned that the advisory committee suggested that the project should focus more on Black Alaskan men. Uh, talk a little bit about that decision and uh, your thoughts about it. 
I, I agree with the committee's approach, and um, certainly I was, I've had a lot of respect for the thought process that went into that. Um, I, I agree that there are some, some strong stereotypes um, really against a lot of people of color, but the specific focus on men, I agreed with it. Um, your follow-up question to me might be, oh, what's an example of um, a stereotype that I've experienced? And for me, um, it can be... Um, stereotypes or surprises around my fascination and um, inclination that comes to it, technology or photography or more common in social circles with, with, with my size and the color of my skin. Um, there's assumptions baked into my role in a corporation, whether it be oh, more of a security guard or there's expectations that you're going to be funny um, or the other stereotypes and stigmas that come with having big hands, big feet and being a man of color. Um, I'll tell you a brief story with a previous employer. I was a candidate to, to run a public relations department, and um, they, they came to me, and the, the suggestion from some was to just go ahead and promote or move me into that position. Uh, the superintendent at the time was, was actually from, from Tennessee, and she came to me, and she said, well, there's a strong push to just move you into this position and name you the director. And I, I inquired about the the consensus. What did the what did the group of your or the the consensus of your cabinet think? And there wasn't consensus. And, and at that point, I told her that I want to compete for the job. I want you to open it, and I want to compete with everyone else. And, and certainly, she was curious and puzzled. And and really, it was because I knew that if I was appointed, people would assume that I got that job because of the color of my skin. So that's. That's been something that I have had to, to manage and, and certainly battle against my entire professional, my life, and certainly my entire professional career. So, so there are some stereotypes against men of color about their, sort of their intellect and their capabilities, whether it's um, in, in the healthcare industry, if it's in public relations or um, the oil industry or certainly in law. I, uh, your comment about having to prove yourself really resonated. Um, my family is very much mixed race, and I have uh, black sons as well as white sons. And I know that their father would tell them often, look, you're going to have to do a lot more to prove yourself just to be equal. You'll have to, you know... Um, make a lot more effort than maybe some of your white counterparts will have to do. And it sounds like that has been your experience, too, is that you have to work that much harder just simply because of your skin color. Without a doubt. And and, and good for your husband. And I tell you, uh, my white mother has, um, she gets more, if not as much credit as certainly the black members of my family who have reinforced that. So so good for your husband, because that, that is a reality. Um, and, and it may be, hopefully, it's helpful to folks who are listening to understand that. So, Absolutely. Thanks for, thank you for underscoring that, that point. Thanks, Bill. And, Renee, uh, you serve on the Alaska Bar Association's Diversity Commission. Talk about, you were mentioning that, you know, the numbers have barely changed in the decade that you've been here. Talk about the importance of having more people of color working within the legal system. Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity to highlight the Diversity Commission. I'll share that the Diversity Commission is an initiative that was started by the Board of Governors that are essentially made up of 
12 attorneys who represent the entire Alaska legal community. So just give, to give you some numbers, our legal community right now across the state of Alaska is made up of 94% white attorneys and 6% what we call BIPOC, meaning Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And that is just a stark contrast to what our state looks like because our state is actually 36% diverse. So right on its face, it almost strikes you to say, why wouldn't our legal community look like our total community? And to directly answer your question, I think that that's just incredibly important because as we think about how people of color have traditionally interacted with the legal system, it is going to be incredibly important that when they interact, whether in a negative or positive way, unfortunately, all too often in a negative way, whether that's for a criminal matter or for death or for child custody matters, it would just be so wonderful for them to see someone who looked like themselves. Or when we think about our indigenous communities, see someone who can speak the same native language in addition to English. And so when we think about these systemic problems of diversity, equity, and inclusion going into some of our professional communities, the numbers are so low that we know that we have a lot of work to do. And again, I'm hoping that the project that the Rasmussen Foundation has put so much time, effort, and energy into will expose more and more of our young people to not only want to be lawyers, of course I'm biased, but also to stay here and to make a difference in how we see lawyers across the state. Absolutely. People have to see themselves reflected in those those positions um, and those professions in order to even dream and imagine it. So that is so critical, so important. Let's go to the phones for a moment. Petla is in Anchorage. Hello. Hi, good morning. I'm Petla Noden. I'm from Bellingham, Bristol Bay. I'm an alcoholic, so I went through the system. You know, I've been sober for quite a while, but I've been through the system and I saw first times you know, especially in uh, my years of alcoholism, in and out of the courtrooms. And uh, what I experienced was firsthand, uh, sometimes blatant, but a lot of subtle injustices when it comes to race in the court. And um, most times it's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting in the courtroom waiting for my turn, and I'll watch a line of black men go through, and just, they're on a conveyor belt. And a lot of people characterize uh, the system as uh, a, a broken a broken system that needs to be fixed. But what I've witnessed is a fixed system that's greased and well-oiled. And what it is is a conveyor belt. And it's fixed in such a way that if you're a minority, if you're black, if you're native, you're going to do time regardless of the merits of your case, regardless of the facts of the case. But if you're broke, if you're minority, you're going to do time. And uh, so that was my experience going through the court system. So I agree with you that we have a lot of work to do when it comes to better representation. Well, thank you for the call, Petla. And I want to let Renee have a chance to respond to your thoughts about your experience in the legal system and how you see it for people of color. Renee, do you hear those sentiments often? You know, I, I do hear those sentiments, and um, thank you for calling in. And most importantly, I think that what 
I can take away from practicing law for over a decade is ultimately all of us want to walk into systems that feel fair. And there is just an overwhelming feeling that if you don't see someone who sounds like you, looks like you, or is even in the same community as you, you may feel that things are really unfair. And we know that historically, there's no telling the amount of atrocities that have been committed against people of color. But I, I continue to stay in Alaska, practice in Alaska, and speak to the young people of Alaska because I genuinely believe that we are still in one of the best times in history to improve what is the current state of affairs to make this a much better world for all of our children, um, particularly those who are dreaming and looking to represent us in the best way right here at home. We have an email from Will who says, thanks for this special broadcast on Blacks in Alaska. Being a retired educator and professional counselor, the question I often ponder is, why do we have to execute a special program to properly recognize minorities in America at large? He writes, unless we address the past and current white resistance of teaching, for a lack of a better word, critical race theory. Learning about other cultures should begin first at home, but more importantly, within our State Department of Education. So uh, uh, let's, um, we're going to take a quick break here and then we can get some uh, feedback on on Will's thoughts here about why we need to do special programming and also that word minorities, which I think doesn't work anymore. I, I feel like people that look like me uh, that are white are becoming more and more the minority in this country. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will be joined by Jewel Jones, and we'll learn more about her work and her involvement in the Black in Alaska project as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We are discussing a project that is being supported by the Rasmussen Foundation called Black in Alaska, collecting stories of black Alaskans from all across the state. Um, right now, there's a couple of them on their website. We're, we'll link to that on our Talk of Alaska post today, so you can go look at the stories that are there and read the bios of the advisory board members, as well as the production team that is involved. We have on the line with us Angela Cox, who is the VP of External Affairs for Rasmussen Foundation. Bill Bailey and Renee Wardlaw are both advisory committee members for the project. And now we're joined by Jewel Jones, who is a former director of the Anchor 
Anchorage Social Services Department and Department of Health and Social and Human Services. She also worked for five different Anchorage mayoral administrations. Jewel, welcome. I have always marveled at and admired your career. Well, thank you very much. Thanks so much for being with us. How difficult, I, you know, I think about that, that you worked within five different mayor's administrations in Anchorage and held many visible high-level positions. How difficult was that for a woman, and especially a woman of color? Well, it was difficult if you made it difficult. And I chose not to make it difficult. I uh, came to Alaska in the late 60s, and my first job was with the Community Action Agency. And I gained just a lot of visibility because of the work Community Action was doing in what was then a very small town. And I think there may be 60,000 people, dogs, cats, moose, you know, it, it, it was a very small community. The black community was very visible, very active. And uh, I had that opportunity to you know, do as much as I could and work toward the goals of community action, which uh, the coming in mayor, George Sullivan, you know, met me and said, hey, I'd like you to come to work for the city. And at that time, Mayor Sullivan recognized that there were very few minorities. I think at that point there were 12 or more blacks that worked for the then city, and they were all in the uh, refuge. They called it the garbage department, in the refuge department. But the key to that was they made more money than anybody else in the city, more than police officers, more than firefighters. And the idea was to say, you guys keep doing what you're doing. That's great. But let's find other opportunities and ways for people to come into government. So you know, I had a task, and I had the support of a mayor that wanted this to happen. So the visibility and the opportunity to do that job was very exciting, and it was kind of easy. You mentioned, Jewel, that you've been in Anchorage since the 60s, the late 60s, but you grew up in New York. Why did you decide Alaska was where you wanted to spend your life? Well, actually, I was born in Oklahoma, and uh, my family had... Uh, lots of businesses, and they were very busy. And I'm one of those very proud to say grandmother's children. Uh, I went to live in New York with my father's mother and father, and I got to experience uh, plays in Broadway. I lived in Harlem on 140th Street, right around the corner from the Savoy Ballroom. And, uh, and, and I had that uh, wonderful East Coast, uh, Harlem education. But when my grandmother died, then that's how I got back to Oklahoma, got married, and uh, came to Alaska, and I've been here ever since. So <laughs> Fantastic. That, that story. <laughs> All right. This is Talk of Alaska, if you're just joining us. And you, if you'd like to join our conversation, if you have suggestions for the Black in Alaska Project or you have questions... You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email questions or comments to talk at alaskapublic.org. 
Let's hear a clip from one of the stories collected for the Black in Alaska project. Jamar Hill founded and serves as president and director of RBI Alaska for non-baseball people that's run batted in an MLB affiliated program, so Major League Baseball affiliated program that supports youth baseball and softball players in urban and rural Alaska communities. Jamar says baseball is a predominantly white sport, and a lot of the kids he coaches, he realized he might be the only black person they know. And so he thought a lot about that and took how he presented and handled himself more seriously. For the next wave of black Alaskans, I believe that there is the landscape for them to be more accepted, although I do think that the population demographics that kind of push certain groups of people to certain areas of town fights against that. But I think we have, we have the landscape for that to be something real cool. I've been able to experience a lot, you know, get a level of education that wasn't really expected of me. And I deeply want that for other kids that kind of grew up in my same situation. Jewel, reflect on, on Jamar's comments. What kind of change do you see now compared to when you first arrived here in the late 60s in how people treat each other and in opportunity for especially young people of color? Well, I think reflecting, you know, back into the 60s, we treated each other better. We, it was a small community, the entire community that was white, black, uh, indigenous, large Filipino community, but it was small. And it was kind of like everybody knew everybody. I laugh often when, uh, you know, we say when we get on a plane going out of Alaska, everybody knew everybody on the plane. So it's changed in a way that, and, and I think it's positive because that's what growth does. You don't know everybody. And, um, Young people are having to experience that kind of lack of identity, that they don't have that closeness. And I think that has been a real detriment to what it was like in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s here. All right, let's go back to the phones for a moment. Uh, Will, the the gentleman who had emailed earlier has called in, and I'm sure he can much more clearly articulate his thoughts than I tried to stumble through his email. Hello, Will. Hey, thank you so much for reading my email, and thank <laughs> you for taking my call. Yes. You know, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of resistance to uh, about teaching. Um, flesh that out. You are uh, uh, an educator, retired educator. So, Talk a little bit about what you see there and your concern about it. Well, uh, when, when you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of educating people about the achievements and the accomplishments of people who've been marginalized from the inception of this country, We've got to have that conversation, and this wonderful that this organization is now in existence here in Alaska. And I marvel at the thought of us having to create a special space in our country, in our world, in our community, 
to recognize people of color. That's the elephant in the room. I mean, it is a very difficult conversation to have, but I think in order to heal, and that's what this is, it's a healing that we are searching for. But in order for that healing to take place, there has to be an exercise of atonement. I mean, we've got to come together in the table, and I think this new organization is doing just that, and talking about why is there resistance? I mean, if we're one human race, why is there resistance to learning about me? I came up here in 1976 in the military, and then when my kids hit teenagehood, I decided, they decided rather for us that they didn't want to move anymore. So we retired here, and being the only African-American educator slash counselor in the Anchorage School District beginning in 1992, I experienced that resistance in a real, real way, and I won't go into it in details right now. But there is a lot of us, young and old, who are just exhausted. Mm. We are heavy laden. We are exhausted over lamenting over this issue. So I am glad that Alaska is looking at a, a broad way, and I hope that this organization will somehow or another address the issue of resistance, for lack of a better word, critical race theory. But if we don't bring in those, the beginning of this conversation at the K-12 level, I think we're going to keep getting the same. Mm. I have four grandchildren that are all biracial, and my youngest is uh, four years old in a preschool setting. And two weeks ago, she came home and discussed with me that what she thought were friends, made some very derogatory comments to her about her hair. And that really got under my skin. I had to do everything I could to resist not going down to the school, but I did write the principal a letter. That mm -hmm. is a form of bullying. This resistance that we're seeing throughout our nation at school board meetings and, and elsewhere, this resistance really is a form of bullying. It and is. I'm hoping that this new organization do all they can to address the root cause of the problem. It's the parents my age, 68, 69, 70, that are perpetuating this, uh, this, this illness in our society. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, uh, Will, for your call. And I want to I want to pick up there. Um, you brought up a, a number of points, and I want to let our guests respond to some of those. Um, when you were talking about your granddaughter, I remember my stepson's coming home from school angry or in tears because someone had flung hurtful words at them. Their dad would tell them that no one else defines who they are, only they can, so they should not let a slur propel them into negative action. I 
wanted the parents of the kids who had said those things to see the pain it caused our kids. What, Bill, when you think about these things and in school, you grew up here, what do you want people to know about the power and pain of certain words? Well, Will touched on it. Um, I do believe that a lot of this stuff starts in the home. I think that's what he was saying. He was saying K-12, but uh, a lot of these, these stereotypes, these biases, they they come out of the home. Um, going back, another example, you're bringing up your stepkid. My sister, if she was on there, I believe an example she would give is um, kids, girls used to make fun of her thick, full, beautiful lips. Fast forward decades later, um, some of those same women pay a lot of money um, to get their lips to look like hers. So, um, you know, that it's, it's, it is. It's, it's hard for kids to reconcile things that mom and dad or, or aunt and uncle or friends may say at home, and then they go to school, and, and they, they try to – and they just don't understand um, the, the, the root of, of the kind of the hate, but then they repeat what they hear and they see. So, um, I, I, yeah, I do agree. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's sick and it's sad and it's very real. All right. Well, on that note, we need to take another quick break. When we come back, we will continue our discussion about the Black in Alaska project as Talk of Alaska continues. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. With Omicron spreading fast, many Alaskans will test positive for COVID-19. If this happens to you, what should you do? Head home and isolate as best as you can away from others. Let your close contacts know they may have been exposed so they can quarantine. Get plenty of rest and stay hydrated. Call your doctor. Treatments may be available, especially if you are at high risk for severe illness. If your symptoms worsen, seek medical help. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services. NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student, regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAalaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the Black in Alaska project that is compiling the stories of black Alaskans from all across the state and will be featured on their website, Black in Alaska. We'll link to that on our Talk of Alaska post at alaskapublic.org so you can check that out. Let's go back to the phones for a moment. Judge Herman Walker is on the line in Anchorage. Hello. Uh, Good morning. I want to Thank you for taking my call and uh, and for putting this project uh, on the air like this. I think it's very important for our state. Thank you. Did you um, you I see a comment here that you're the only Black Superior Court judge. I am, um, and I've been on the bench since 2015. I've been practicing law up here since 1990. I came up here in 1992 and been practicing as a lawyer since 1993 up here. So I predate Miss Renee. Um, as far as practicing law up here in the state of Alaska. And, and the comment I wanted to make was a couple of things. One is um, I, I agree with Ms. Wardrow that about diversity in the legal field and the importance of it. Um, that's one reason why I decided to become a judge. I've been practicing up here for a while. My wife, who is Hispanic, and I 
uh, had a very successful firm. But when you looked at the judiciary at that time, um, there was no minorities, at least at the Superior Court level. There was one at the District Court level um, judge. But at that time, in, 19, in 2015, there was all elder white males and one female, which was different than when I first started practicing up here. When I first started practicing up here, uh, we had quite a diverse bench. I think Judge Card was the first African black man to be chosen as a Superior Court judge. We had a Hispanic judge, Asian judges on the bench. We had several women at that time. And then over time, people retired, um, and we didn't have any minorities at all. So that's one of the reasons why I decided to become a judge, because um, there are two reasons. One is because I wanted to give back to the state that has done wonderful for me since I moved here. And, most, and the second reason is because I think our judiciary should reflect the community. Um, so I think that's really, really important. The other point I wanted to make was um, as far as trying to diversify the legal field, you know, there's some difficulties, at least in my experience, trying to hire law clerks. Um, you know, Alaska has a certain stigma in it, and nobody wants to come up here, um, which I think we need to somehow change, because uh, the problem is just getting more minorities to come up here and understand how wonderful our state is. Um, in order to diversify our bench. I do think it's very, very important that we have a diverse legal field. People want to walk into the court system. It's a, it's a scary place to begin with, but it makes it more helpful if you're at least seeing more um, people of color to reflect who you are and at least make the process a little bit more simpler. We have wonderful judges on our bench, and as far as the court system goes, we've done a lot as far as, as um training and diversification. We have a DNI committee to work on these issues. Um, and so we're, we're the, the judiciary itself is, I think, moving in the direction that the rest of the country and the community is moving towards is understanding its role and understanding different cultures and how it plays out in the court system. Well, thank you so much for the call, Judge Walker. Appreciate that you brought that clarity in and uh, capitalizing on what Renee was talking about when it comes to seeing someone who looks like you in a setting that is already stressful can maybe help someone feel not quite so isolated and alone and and hopefully um, that will help them through the whole process. Let's hear a clip from uh, another one of the stories in the Black in Alaska Project. Tracy Gatewood grew up in the segregated South, but says it was when she came to Alaska in 1993 that she experienced direct racism. Let's hear a bit from Tracy. Because sometimes when you're the only one, you know, the room can do the collective. We have a diversity question or a diversity issue. And so it's like, okay, Tracy, tell us what you want. You know, tell us about every black person in the world. And that that's not been something that I've ever been comfortable with. But again, I have always wanted to represent and represent positively and try to get people to think outside of the box and the stereotypes about what we as black people can do either in Alaska or in the world. For all of you, uh, Will mentioned this when he called in earlier, the retired educator, Will, who called in and talked about being exhausted. For all of you, when you talk about an incident, incident of racism with white people, what happens? Are you generally met with disbelief that it happened, defensiveness, a blanket apology? 
what, uh, Renee, let's start with you. What happens? You know, I would say all of the above, and it depends mm -hmm. on the circumstance, but I would say the, the differentiating factor for me has been the level of relationships less intimacy that I have with that person who's not a member of the BIPOC community in advance of having this conversation, right? So if I've met you and we're in a general context and I share one of what unfortunately are many instances of racism that I've experienced um, primarily here in Alaska, then I think it's more of shock and awe. I think that when I'm in a one-on-one -on -one setting with folks who know me and know a little bit more about my story, then I get many more questions. And so that leads to, I think, a secondary issue that may be a little under the surface of when you hear of instances of racism or injustice that are levied towards your friends of the BIPOC community, what do you do with that? Do you inquire more? Do you have some level of support? or do you simply have a listening ear? And I think all of those can be appropriate measures, but I think that they have to be incredibly specific to the circumstances and to the person who's sharing that story with you. We often hear from Native people that no one speaks for all Native people. Black people are not a monolith either. As advisory committee members, did you discuss that, or is this more an effort to simply highlight the lives of Black Alaskans so they can be seen as all other people who live here are. Uh, Angela, do you want to answer that one? Sure. I, I think the committee has been very intentional about, you know, bringing names that represent people of all different backgrounds, you know, all different occupations, um, in hopes that we're not doing that, you know, that we're not saying, oh, this is what all black people look like, act like, sound like, and do. Thank you. And uh, we only have a few minutes left here. I want to get back to Jewel. Jewel, as an advisory uh, committee member and as someone who's been in Alaska for so long and seen a lot, what do you hope for with this work? What do you hope the collected stories in the Black in Alaska project accomplishes? Well, I, for me, and I think I... I, I said when I first joined the committee that day, a roundtable at the foundation, and I absolutely was in awe of the variety of so many people that I didn't know. And the work that was being done around the state, the positions that people had, and I thought, wow, it, it, this is growth, this is progress, and this is wonderful. But I did want to just make one quick comment that, you know, Will said, exhausted. And, you know, as long as I've been here and as old as I am, you know, I say we don't have time to be exhausted. It, it's, it's a struggle. It has been. It will continue to be. But we just have to keep our eyes on the prize. And it's not a prize. It's not one prize. It is the whole opportunity to continue to fight for inclusion, to tell our stories. You know, we've always had to deal with hair and lips and skin color. You know, but as, as Bill said, you know, a lot of people are paying a lot of money to look like us. And that's something to be emulated, that we have that pride in ourselves and not to hold ourselves short, you know, that 
we are the prize and we're going forward. Well, let's just in our final minute here, I just want some reaction to that thought of imitation. Imitation can be flattering, but it can also be really offensive. And cultural appropriation is something that Native people and Black people know a lot about. So the current issues, there's uh, a lot popping up in pop culture. Uh, what would you want to, people to know about when it's acceptable and respectful and when it's not? Well, I, I think that it's the intent of the person and the appropriation. It's, it's what they have in their minds. If it's a form of flattery, you know, that can be acceptable at times. But if it's, you know, something to be just pretend and to imitate, you know, you have to stop that right in its tracks and you call them up short. You know, you don't have time anymore to to be polite and be exhausted. You just call it as it is when you see it. All right, thank you. And in our final, uh, we only have about 30 seconds left here, a recent New York Times article profiled an organization that does diversity work. Uh, their organization is called Beloved. They take the entire month of February off. They tell their clients that this work needs to be done year-round, not just in this month. What are your thoughts about having a month that is dedicated to black history? Is it something that you celebrate, celebrate uh, Bill, how about for you? Is black history, you're asking me, do I, how do I feel about taking an entire month off to recognize black history? Well, I, I, I prefer, with the, with the few seconds we have, I prefer and respect immensely the work that the Rasmussen Foundation is doing to tell these stories and to have them live on forever and to share these stories throughout the year. And I think it's appropriate to weave these stories, these images, into daily education. What a great way to wrap up. Thank you so much, Bill, for those uh, great, clear comments. And thanks to all of our guests today, Angela Cox, VP of External Affairs for the Rasmussen Foundation, Bill Bailey and Renee Wardlaw, who are vo both advisory committee members for the Black in Alaska Project, as is Jewel Jones, who is also an advisor and uh, former director of the Anchorage Social Services Department and worked under five administrations in Anchorage under mayoral administrations. Thanks so much to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adlin Baxter, and on the phones and social media, Kavitha George. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.